there are three main worldviews with uh, fundamental assumptions about life, and they all contradict each other. Will you please be seated? As we sit, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we pray that you will now open your word by your Holy Spirit to our minds and our hearts, and our minds and our hearts to your word. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the title for our sermon tonight is Contending for Truth with Special Reference to Sex and Marriage. Contending for Truth uh, is part of what is needed to change Britain or anywhere else. Uh, and the last part of our JPC vision statement of godly living, church growth, and uh, changing Britain. But why should you contend for truth? The simplest answer is Jude chapter, uh, Jude verse 4, which says, Dear friends, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. And uh, these are, th th this is a command uh, that we ought to be uh, obeying. So tonight we're going to be thinking about contending for aspects of the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints, those first believers, the apostles of uh, Christ. Now my headings, as you can see from the back uh, of your service sheets, are first contending for truth and secondly sex and marriage. Not very difficult to follow. Um, and uh, I, sh I shall be looking at Mark 10 uh, verses 6 to 9 and Hebrews 13 4 from our gospel and epistle readings and uh, they're, they're on uh, the pages 10, 14 and 12, 11 of the Bibles in the Bible, but also you've got them on the back of your service sheets if that's easier. So first, contending for truth. How do you account for the current confusion over the truth regarding what is right and wrong? One factor is that people in the West today have radically different ideas of what is reasonable or rational. That's because in the West there are three main worldviews with uh, fundamental assumptions about life and they all contradict each other. And these assumptions are often held unconsciously. But what seems reasonable to someone relates to fundamental assumptions already held. Also, you saw from that video clip of the ash experiment how easily you can irrationally believe what is not true if everyone else uh, around you is believing it. And I'm convinced that the two commonly held worldviews that are taught to our children and reinforced to adults by the media at the moment in the West are simply wrong. Uh, but they are being believed as in the ash experiment. Uh, however, I need to say about that ash experiment that we saw, it's what mostly happens. The original um, experiment, soon, uh, I believe, after the Second World War, uh, it was one in four that did not compromise. Uh, so my prayer is for everyone in this building tonight that we will be the sort of people among those that who are among those one in four. Now, the first of these two wrong worldviews is that of mod modernistic scientism. And now, this is the view that human intelligence in time can discover all the facts 
and truths about the universe, including the facts and truths of morality. With this view, people see the history of ideas as a history of progress. So you go from mistaken superstitions to more respectable religions, but then when man comes of age, that was a phrase from the 1960s, you go on to atheism and science. Now, I wrote about the limits of science in the recent October Coloured Supplement that's now on the church website. Time forbids me to say more about that. But the second view, or set of assumptions, comes from an extreme over-contradiction of uh, uh, that uh, modernistic scientism. And this is called postmodernism. And it, that holds that there's no such body of facts or truths waiting to be discovered. Rather, you have to exercise your will and uh, create interpretations, therefore new facts even, and new truths, and indeed a new morality of your own. And uh, with regard to conventional sexual morals and traditional marriage, postmodernism says these simply are the result of the wills of men uh, for domineering over women. And it was the German philosopher Nietzsche who was the founding father of this view, that the will to power explains so much. Well, scientism and postmodernism today provide assumptions for so many. The third view is, of course, that of mainstream Christianity, which no longer in the UK is getting much educational or media support. This Christian worldview requires us to submit to God's authority and truth spoken by his Holy Spirit through the Bible and learned about in the community of other Christians, that's the Church of Jesus Christ. And it is supremely learned, of course, through Christ himself, God come in human form. And this worldview is believable because Jesus actually lived, died, and rose again. That real resurrection and empty tomb validated his claims and resulted in his living and reigning through his Holy Spirit at this moment and so in our lives. But the problem is this. Because of these competing views in the West, certainly in the UK, there is no one view of what the good life is or what, or what moral behaviour should be. So corporately, society is in moral breakdown. And this breakdown has enormous negative economic and social outcomes. Certainly that is true regarding sex and marriage. I've referred to it uh, before in a coloured supplement. According to Guy Brandon of the Cambridge Jubilee Centre and his recent paper, Free Sex, Who Pays? The breakdown could be in the order of 100 billion not million, billion annually, to the taxpayer and the wider economy. And I shall mention some of the social costs later. So rational argument is now very difficult, publicly. How then do you contend as a Christian in such a world? Well, today's world is not totally different to the pluralistic world of the first century and the New Testament. As you study the Apostle Paul, you see how he contended. When arguing with the Jews, um, he assumed much common ground from their belief in the Old Testament. But they needed to learn that for all their religion and often correct understanding, 
They were still sinners in need of forgiveness and new spiritual life and power. I wonder if there's anyone here tonight like that. This service speaks just about the solution. However, when Paul went to pagans in the Roman world, such as the intellectuals in Athens, you read about them in Acts 17, uh, 22 to 31, because he had time, he presented a total Christian worldview. And against that background, he spoke of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus and the end of history and future judgment. But when he had less time, as at Lystra, he spoke about the evidence, evidence provided by God's goodness. In Acts 14, 17, he says, yet he, that's God, has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. God is good, Paul is saying. And that is still a way you need to argue and contend publicly in the 21st century. Take the argument in favor of uh, stopping Sunday trading. The religious argument is simple. God tells you in the Bible to keep one day holy or special. And uh, arguing with pagan people who do not believe in the God of the Bible, you can still say that because it might ring bells with them. However, you also need an argument that does not assume Christians, Christian belief about the Bible. So what you say is that God's law is always for human flourishing. The fact is we simply need the rhythm of one day off in seven as human beings. And society needs a rest, so we all need the same day, except obviously for, 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 for obvious exceptions. The proof is that the French revolutionaries, uh, after 1792, introduced a new 10-day week. Uh, it was a disaster. People couldn't last nine days without a break. So in 1805, Napoleon restored the seven-day week. Uh, it was similar with the Russian Revolution. With the intention of destroying religious tradition, Sunday was turned into a working day, and that too was a disaster. And before long, Stalin restored Sunday as a day of rest. The point is this. When you're contending uh, in public, in the NHS, as a lawyer, as a teacher, in a hostile school environment, or wherever, uh, or whoever, or wherever you are, you need to make it clear that God's moral laws or state laws that should reflect them are for everyone's good. And that is no more true than our subject tonight and uh, our second heading of sex and marriage. What then does Jesus himself teach about sex and marriage? Well, you had it in our gospel reading. Jesus goes back to Genesis uh, and the creation narrative and quotes Genesis 2:24. Look at Mark. 10, 6, and 9. That's the top of your back page. Um, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. First, Jesus teaches that marriage is heterosexual. Being male and female is a matter of creation, not uh, culture. Uh, verse 6, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So the Bible's definition of marriage is that it is heterosexual. It unites a man and his wife, not a man and a male lover. Secondly, it is monogamous. The man and the woman here are both in the singular. 
that polygamy was tolerated for a while in Old Testament times, but monogamy was God's intention for humankind. Thirdly, it's a committed relationship. The word united has the idea of sticking to something. It's a very strong word. So that rules out all cohabitation, where there is not that commitment for life, witnessed and supported by the wider society. For fourthly, marriage is a public institution. Before the uniting in marriage, there must be a leaving of parents. And the leaving is a public occasion, as are the promises of commitment. It's important that there is this public commitment because the wider society must know uh, a lifelong marriage is happening. Fifthly, marriage is sexual and the only legitimate context for sexual intercourse. That's verse 8. The two will become one flesh so that they are no longer two but one. Now note, the becoming one flesh comes after there is leaving and uniting. Now, as you can see from elsewhere in the Bible, that means all premarital and non-marital sex, fornication, extramarital sex, adultery, and male and female homosexual sex are forbidden. Sixthly, marriage is to be lifelong. Look at verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. But those words actually are not in Genesis. They are Jesus' addition. So we must take them especially seriously. And they imply, seventhly, that marriage is unchanging and cannot be redefined. Yes, the rituals and traditions can change and uh, do so and have done, but as the anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss says, the family everywhere is, I quote, based on a union more or less durable but socially approved of two individuals of opposite sexes who establish a household and bear and raise children. Universally, marriage leading to families is a permanent feature. And it can't be changed or redefined because God is joining together a man and a woman. He's not joining a man and a man or a woman and a woman, nor, I may say, is the clergyman, and nor, certainly, is the state doing the joining by, by the registrar. But it's God who's doing the joining. The clergy and the state witness and declare what has happened. So ever to declare that God has joined a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, would be blasphemy. And note, because God creates the marriage, it's not the couple's relationship that creates the marriage. So uh, a marriage is not the sort of thing that dies. It's unhelpful, therefore, to talk of the death of a marriage. Yes, relationships go up and down, but not the marriage as such. For God creates the marriage as an institutional fence around the couple's relationship to protect it and to strengthen it. And that is why, without that institutional fence, cohabitation is so fragile. For cohabitation has no support other than the couple's own emotional competencies, which, being human, regularly fail. And we know that if cohabiting couples marry, such couples are 50% more likely to, to have divorced 
after five years of marriage and 60% more likely after eight years of marriage than those who have not cohabited with all the problems and traumas for children. So to summarize, marriage, according to God's creative purpose, as underlined by Jesus, is a heterosexual, monogamous, committed, public, sexual, lifelong, and unchanging, God-given institution. And it is the only right place for human sexual intercourse. Now, Jesus was teaching all this inside Palestine, where there was already a tradition of Jewish restraint. However, outside Palestine, in the Roman world, as the early apostles soon discovered, there was utter sexual decadence. A Roman empress in AD 50 was a common prostitute. Of the first 15 Roman emperors, 14 were practicing homosexuals. And Jerome, an early church father, tells of a woman marrying her 23rd husband, she being his 21st wife. Sadly, that is too often the situation today, with children suffering, society suffering, and the sexual partners suffering. Certainly, students suffer. A first-year student was describing what it was like living in a university flat. There are five of us, all girls. One regularly has casual sex with guys she picks up at clubs. One is a practicing lesbian. The one has a boyfriend who stays here virtually all the time. In the first term, one of us had an abortion. Two took the morning after pill. I just don't know how to cope with all of this. Well, to the Roman world then, and our world today, the writer to the Hebrews has something to say in chapter 13, verse uh, 4. And you've got that uh, at the top of your back page. Look at it. it. It's very simple. It says this. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now note four things that are being said or implied here. First... Marriage is to be honoured. That means you must fight against the current cohabiting and divorce and remarriage culture, which is undermining marriage. And as a current priority, you must fight against redefining marriage to include same-sex unions, as the present government is proposing. For this will devalue and dilute the social support that comes from privileging heterosexual marriage alone. And we need to fight against institutionalising open-ended cohabitation as the equivalent of marriage. Because, you see, when all, all relationships are privileged, none are. None will be specially supported. And you will have even more family collapse. Heterosexual monogamous lifelong marriage is to be honoured as an institution that is good for children, good for society, and good for the couple. Studies in the 1990s and more recently have simply proved that. While new family arrangements, sadly, on average, are simply less good for children, society, and the child's parents. Secondly, marriage is for all. Now, marriage, says our writer, should be honoured by all. Some think there is Christian marriage, and then there's state marriage. So they say, let the state do with marriage what it likes. Well, that is so wrong. 
As we've seen, and as we say in the marriage service, marriage is a gift of God in creation. Marriage is for human beings as such. All that's different in a church wedding is that you make your vows uh, in public, not just before your friends and your family, uh, as in a registry office, uh, but before God as well. And uh, in the promises, you are buying into Christ and the New Testament teaching on marriage, some of which, of course, we've got here in Mark and uh, Hebrews. So marriage is to be honoured by all, Christians and non-Christians. Thirdly, our verse implies sex and marriage are affected by the fall. In Genesis 1 and 2, you read about God's intention for the man and the woman. In Genesis 1, they're to be fruitful and multiply, that have children. Uh, in Genesis 2, it says it's not good to be alone. Uh, the man, Adam, then is given as a loving companion for the woman, uh, the, the, uh, as, a, as a wife, the woman Eve. And as we say in the marriage service, husband and wife are to be united in love as Christ is united with his church. But then chapter 3 of Genesis uh, tells us about the fall. There, the woman and then the man decide they know better than God and the result is misery. And since then, there have been cultures and times when men have taken advantage of women's sexual drives to exploit and dominate them. And in other cultures and times, women have overreacted and there's sexual and marital chaos. This is all part of the world of sinful. The writer to the Hebrews is therefore writing because marriage may not be honoured and the marriage bed may not be kept pure. And why does he say this? Well, because, and this is his fourth point, fourth point, verse 4, God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Our writer doesn't pull any punches. All the evidence, as I've uh, hinted, is that if you don't keep God's rules for sex and marriage, there will be suffering now, in the future, in terms of damage down to the next generation, and eternally. People don't like to hear it, as they don't like to hear bad news from the doctor. But the hard facts are, to quote Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. And that, of course, rules out reincarnation and extinction at death. Hebrews has been saying, however, that we all do sin. The writer knows reality. But the good news is that Christ came that first Christmas to provide a remedy for sin and indeed purification from sin. You read that in verse 1 as the reason for his coming. At chapter 1 of Hebrews. And that's good news. Now I know that in a church like this tonight there'll be some who are not only mixed up but severely damaged sexually and maritally through your own fault or someone else's. And there is a sad situation in the world. This is increasing with this breakdown of morality that I've already spoken about. And there are other people who are single or married to a non-believing partner and finding life very hard. This side of heaven, the reality of the fall, will never completely be undone. But God can turn even the wrath of man to praise him, as Psalm 76 verse 10 can be translated. God can bring good out of what's bad. But how? 
Well, listen to Hebrews 4, verse 15, and with this I conclude. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. So Christ is unshockable, yet he was without sin. Now, that is the good news. But what precisely do we do about it? Well, answers in the next verse, 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So trust God's word and act on it. Hebrews chapter 11 has just told us that Rahab, a prostitute, uh, did, and so did uh, the dissolute Samson at the end of his life, as examples for us. No one is too bad to be forgiven or too good to need to be forgiven. Through Christ, who bore all our sexual and marital sins on the cross and now gives us strength by his Holy Spirit to live differently as we celebrate tonight. Why we do celebrate in, the, in a moment in the Lord's Supper. So let's pray. And let's have a moment of silent prayer. We have all different histories. And uh, let's thank God for the wonderful good news that we are forgiven everything in Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross. And we can have his grace and we can have his help in our time of need. And that includes any need whatsoever. Moment of silent prayer as we conclude. <clears throat>